Today, we're not only going to talk about blessings and curses, but we're going to talk about the trait of the Nephilim. How can we trace the spirit of it throughout different kings, kingdoms, and people groups throughout history? This is going to be fascinating. Welcome to Drilling Down. guys, I got a little bit um, distracted on the last episode with my personal stories and really forgot to mention something I thought would probably be important when it comes to Ham and Noah in that tent. Now, I've talked about this before. I can't remember where. I'm sorry. A better podcast host would point you into the exact episode. <laughs> Ain't got time for that. There's a very good possibility, and I've done a lot of research on it talked about it somewhere else that what ham actually did was defile his mom noah's wife while he was drunk in an effort to once again usurp noah in his line so noah curses his son who had just you know was born and young a sprightly teenager probably at that point on the new planet earth (laughs) and my guess is he cursed Canaan because it was very evident Canaan was something different and I take that I trail that into the land of Canaan and everything that went there man was that in Timothy Alberino's series uh holy crap I don't remember but I just wanted to, you know, throw that out there. I think it was much more sinister than what we what we actually think happened there because of the the severity of the curse. And then we see what plays out down the road. Anyway, I just remember I forgot to kind of bring that in. I think that is a real possibility. I'll unpack that at some other time. But blessings and curses in the Bible are a huge deal, and I I really believe in them generationally. Yeah, with this is off to a great start with our generations today. So we talked a lot about epigenetics, but blessings and curses. We want to we want to kind of dig into there and uh, see what and I love the way Laura Sanger does this. See what clues are there. Can they disrupt? Can they act as an epigenetic signal? A blessing and a curse. It's crazy to think about, right? <laughs> So, I mean, a lot of people these days are writing about how your brain can be switched on and the complexities of the brain, guys, are just ridiculous. Neurosurgeons, like everybody's, people study it, but they're like, we still don't know so much. It's just crazy what God whipped up for us up there. And did did you know, I mean, like in the ancient times, they didn't even know we thought with that. (laughs) So anytime you're reading this, the Old Testament stuff, and even a lot of the New Testament stuff, the idea wasn't that we we thought with the thing up in our heads. They thought you thought from within your gut. Yeah, so that, there's a lot of rabbit trails I could go off of right there, especially when it comes to Paul talking about women with long hair. It has a lot to do with a lot, you know some different things than you're even thinking about. But Dr. Dr. Laura, Dr. Laura, yeah, the, not that Dr. Laura. Um, Dr. Laura Sanger is talking about DNA here and RNA. So I'm going to 
I'm going to quote her again because I'm a moron. This is, man, this is so good, guys. This is pumping me up. This got my jams pumped up. All right, check this out. So the DNA, she says, is zipped up, almost as though it's in a cocoon, until activated or unzipped by the signal. When the DNA is zipped up, it is in its dormant or inert state. Okay. Picturing this in your heads, right? So the zipped up DNA has to be opened. UIT people are loving this. So that the appropriate genetic code needed to build the protein can be read. As it is opened and the code is read, RNA, a type of protein that almost lacks like a photocopier, makes a photocopy of the code which serves as a guide or architectural plan to build the proteins within the machinery inside the cell. You know this is happening in you? You're pretty impressive. Just letting you know that. This is called genetic expression. And these proteins you have... Oh, and these proteins you have caused to be built hold the information that you have just read as a thought or a memory. You have created substance. (laughs) I picture the... uh, the 1970s dude reading this that was in the transparent, freakishly horrifying meat suit showing all of his insides. Sweet, sweet nectar of life. What happened to me back then? All right, check this out. The initiating signals that get the ball rolling come from outside the DNA and are therefore called epigenetic phenomena, which means signals that control the genes. When there is an interference with this signal, for example, thinking a toxic thought, or eating unhealthy food, genetic expression does not happen correctly, and then proteins do not form like they should. So, thank you, Dr. Sanger, on a very simplified level, for the morons like me, if you have a toxic thought, the resulting proteins look different and act different than if you have a healthy thought. So cool. Some of you have been in this field a while, and you're like, Kyle, you're just learning this? I'm not even really learning this. I'm just saying it and I'll forget all about it, guys. I'm a caveman. We have a switch. We have a switch gene called the Kreb gene, C-R-E-B, Kreb gene, which we choose to switch on with our thoughts. Here's a simple explanation of this switch gene. As information in the form of electromagnetic and chemical signals move forward to the front part of the brain, it becomes amplified and highly active. This stimulates the release of specialized proteins inside the cell, turning on the Kreb gene which acts like a light switch that we choose to switch on or off by our thoughts. This switch Kreb gene then activates genetic expression. Scientists are discovering precise pathways by which changes in human thinking operate as signals that activate genetic expression, which then produce changes in our brains and our bodies. Our thoughts can unzip genes like a Nephilim gene that are in a dormant state. Now, this this is dangerous because this could take us in some places that, you know, are like, oh, come on, what? But this is scientifically fact. 
And you can actually, not that I have to take everything that's supernatural in the Bible, like blessings and curses, and boil them down to a scientific explanation in order to appease the people around me and, you know, the smart people of this world. I don't have to do any of that. God can do whatever he wants to do, okay? But there is a scientific explanation for the impact that blessings and curses have over our lives that are activated by our thoughts, our words, and our behavior. It's crazy. We, uh, we see in Genesis 9 that uh, Noah released blessings over Shem and Japheth. We, of course, see blessings all over the Bible and curses because they walked with the Lord. But over him, he spoke a curse. Blessings and curses do not just impact an individual. We see that they clearly impact generations. And, you know, we go on and we reread Exodus. Let's just, let's just read it. Exodus 24 through 6. You shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven in heaven above or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. That pretty much covers everything. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. But I show love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's right there. Over and over again, in the scientific world, I'm learning that research is providing confirmation that this can actually happen. A guy named John Barron writes an article. I love reading articles and papers. This is called Everything You Need to Know About Epigenetics. And it summarizes, and if I had a website, I could link this, summarizes a scientific study by Kata Al 2007, which demonstrates that curses, <laughs> listen, last three to four generations. <laughs> They state, the effect does not have to be direct, it can be transgenerational. According to a 2007 Swedish study, which tracked food availability between the ages of 9 and 12 for paternal grandfathers, it's crazy, food shortages in the grandfathers' lives affected the lifespan of their grandchildren, but in a surprising way. A shortage of food for the grandfather was associated with an extended lifespan in his grandchildren. Food abundance, on the other hand, was associated with a greatly shortened lifespan in the grandchildren as a result of increased diabetes and heart disease. It would seem that once again, the sins of the parents, in this case, worshiping rich foods and overeating, are visited upon the children, even unto a third generation. It's like God knows what he's talking about. So the curse spoken over Ham was directed toward Canaan. Oh, Ham's iniquity of sexual perversion, mockery, and dishonoring his father was the cause of the curse. This curse then acted as an epigenetic signal that unzipped the Nephilim gene in Ham's children. The clearest example of this would be in the life of someone he's probably not proud of, Nimrod, Ham's grandson, the son of Cush, the grandson of Ham, and the great-grandson of Noah, Within just three generations, guys, of Noah, we have an emergence of the phenotype of the Nephilim Antichrist. She goes on and explores more about this in him, uh, in, in, uh, in uh, Nimrod, but we aren't going to go there. Key points in this section, there are six of them. Number one, the flood wiped out the Nephilim, but did not end the seed war. Number two, multiple incursions of the same magnitude as the original incursion of Genesis 6 cannot be substantiated or corroborated in Scripture or anywhere else. Three, 
Both the multiple incursion theory and the single incursion theory explain the presence of post-Diluvian giants. Number four, sacred marriage within the Mesopotamian culture between a goddess and king is an example of multiple incursions. Five, epigenetics is the key to single incursion theory explaining the presence of giants after the flood. And lastly, number six, Noah's daughters-in-law were likely carriers of the Nephilim gene. Oh, there's four more. My bad. Seven. It's plausible that the Nephilim gene is a dominant gene that can be turned on or turned off by epigenetic signals such as thoughts, words, and or behaviors. Next one. I don't remember the number I'm on. What do you want from me? Ham's sexually perverse reaction to Noah's drunken naked state released a curse on his descendants. Next, (laughs) Nimrod's participation in sexual rituals and the curse upon Ham's lineage unzipped the Nephilim gene. And lastly, the Nephilim agenda is to defile the human genome through propagating a hybrid race. Okay, so this is going to be a shorter episode uh, because I want to keep things things kind of tight. No, I'm not ending it right now. But she goes into her chapter nine and talks about character traits of the Nephilim. And she starts with, you know, the seed war coming out of Genesis, the, you know, man, we're created in God's image. Therefore, you know, automatically Satan hates us. You know, we've talked about all this. It's it's all in there. She likes to talk about traits um, and she weaves them in. I'm going to leave this to the book with DNA. Really, really cool. Uh, and then she can kind of trace it back. She goes into the New Testament and the Old Testament saying, what are these traits that align themselves over and over again with that spirit of the Nephilim or, you know, Satan? What does he do? How does how does he trick his followers? So, you know, her point is that there's a lot of, we can, we can trace, we want to do our due diligence. We can see there are certain things that always happen. So you want to identify a people group or a leader, sometimes a king, whatever, as having that Nephilim gene trait turned on. She believes you can follow this kind of directory. The first one is not going to be shocking. It's rebellion. The rebellion is at the root of all. Now, the serpent was more crafty in Genesis 3.1, subtle, skilled in deceit than any living creature of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent, Satan, said to the woman, can it really be that God has said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden, right? So right there, we have this, this implanting of rebellion with the Nakash, this serpent, who she was well familiar with and had talked to plenty before. She was not shocked by this. And yes, the biblical account compared to anything in the Mesopotamian or whatever is vague for a reason. Because all the Israelites knew all this stuff about all the supernatural stuff in the garden. And God was saying, look, you know all that. You've had that orally passed down. You get it. Every other you know, religion of your neighbors is telling that story in a certain way. I want you to focus on what I want you to focus on. So there's this deception and this rebellion. So now she is going to trace that all throughout history. This is interesting. She says the word deceived in Hebrew is nasha, which means to deceive, beguile, 
mentally delude, morally seduce, to impose, to cause to go astray, according to the Strong's Concordance. But the Hebrew and the English lexicon known as the Brown Driver Briggs, BDB, defines Nasha as to lend on interest. This is wild, guys. To lend on interest or usury, to become a creditor. Did you catch that? The Hebrew word for deceive means to make someone a debtor. That was the sound of my underwear melting. What is my underwear made out of cotton candy? Wouldn't you like to know? All right. This is really important. So coming up here, we are going to... (laughs) You're probably like, what? How many episodes are we in on this? We're going to get into the Federal Reserve and how the American people were deceived over a century ago. Now, as citizens, we are buried with so much debt, guys, that there is no way out, short of a miracle by God. You go to, we always laugh about this, me and Brad Learning, who will be on this again, usdebtclock.org. It's just, uh, I don't even know what to make of it. Go watch how fast our national debt is rising and other things, usdebtclock.org. Uh, what are we at right now? Uh, 20, 24 trillion? Who knows? That, that, that amount is inconceivable. Guys, when the Federal Reserve Act was passed just before Christmas in 1913, the Congress deviously passed legislation that enslaved American citizens in debt while enriching the coffers of the banking elite. She says, I believe deception, lust, greed, rebellion, and pride ruled the hearts of those that birthed the Federal Reserve. I agree. Before we conclude our journey together, she says, we will see how this plays out in our everyday lives without our consent. The truth shall set us free. So she goes into Eve being beguiled by Satan and she falls into this trap of sin. And the consequence was that she owed a debt that could only be paid by death. She was a debtor to her sin. Romans 6.23, for sin's payment is death, but God's gracious life is eternal life. In Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. Stephen Quell and Dr. Thomas Horn in their book, Unearthing the Lost World of the Cloud Eaters. She likes this one. I do too. I mean, it's been a while. It's been a hot minute since I read it. She says, eloquently describe the ramifications of this great deception. Here we go. I'll quote. Uh, this is the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, a consequence that continues to bear bitter fruit in our sin to this day. The act of rebellion against the creator's command put humanity into such debt that could only be satisfied by the blood of Jesus Christ. But Satan was the banker who wrote the note. Consider this. We have been beguiled by elite banksters who have been led by the great deceiver Satan himself. The entire Federal Reserve System is rooted in Nasha. We will see as we examine the players in... Wow, that came at a great time. Guess hear that siren? That is outside of my hotel room. Uh, We will see as we examine the players involved in the creation of the Federal Reserve that they exuded Nephilim traits. They were master deceivers, skilled at lying to the American people, pretending to have the nation's best interest in mind while crafting an insidious system of enslavement. So there's that rebellion trait. She unpacks this one. 
Another trait is dishonesty in trade. Isn't that wild? But yeah, she does a great job. And uh, she even takes it back to Ezekiel um, and how Satan will make, uh, how he reacts throughout history with being dishonest and deceitful with the trade commodities. Interesting. Another trait is of, will not be surprising, control, manipulation, domination. She kind of puts all those together. Sexual perversion is in there. Um, she says some scholars have suggested that the men willingly traded the women for, really? We got all kinds of sounds going out here, guys. I don't care. I'm not in my studio. I'm on the road. This is what you people get. Hopefully you'll hear my DoorDash knock on the door in a minute. <laughs> okay. Hey. Oh, some scholars have even suggested that the men Willing, oh, she's taking all the watchers and stuff. The men willingly traded the women for the sacred knowledge they were promised from the watchers. Is it possible that these women were the first trafficked women in human history? Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, describes the hidden knowledge that propagated tremendous wickedness and evil among humanity as the virtues of roots and herbs and dyeing and cosmetics. That's D-Y-E-I-N-G, dyeing, as in, you know, tie-dyed shirts. And cosmetics and discoveries of precious materials, love, philopathies, hatreds, armors, passions, constraints of love, the bond of witchcraft, every sorcery and idolatry, hateful to God. Yeah. It becomes clear that the purpose of passing on the knowledge of cosmetics and dying was to enhance the beauty of the women, which in turn fed the lustful desires of the watchers. The writer of First Enoch includes among the teachings passed on by the watchers enchantments, sorcery, pharmacia, divination, astrology, weaponry, and the cutting of roots. Okay, so we've got into that. She goes and talks about how bloodthirsty they are. She talks about the book of Julies, the book of Enoch. Cannibalism is again mentioned. That is definitely in there. Mighty men who were of old, mighty men of renown. She talks about the giants that were on the earth and also afterwards which we've got into a little bit, but here are some of the key points that we want to we want to go through here in this section. That the Nephilim are the seed of Satan and they are created in his image. The next one, character traits of the Nephilim. Treasonous, lustful, deceitful, rebellious, haughty, prideful, vengeful, violent, murderous, masqueraders of servants of righteousness, dishonest in trade, sexually perverse, traffickers, cannibals, renowned, operate in control, manipulation, and domination. Next one. Nephilim were from an ancient epoch of time that is unknown. Nephilim were men of renown and a reputation that was memorialized by monuments, perhaps the megalithic monuments such as Stonehenge, Baalbek, Gigal Raphaim, and the Great Pyramid. The Gibbauer, or mighty men, they are the post-Diluvian giants. Not every biblical reference of Gibbauer pertains to giants, and it's important that we look at the context. Now, I agree with her. So she's going to roll into Nimrod, which we've done plenty of that. Uh, she's going to talk about Nimrod becoming a giant and that gene, which she thinks was switched on. Uh, she says, our character sketch of Nimrod reveals that he was Satan's first attempt at raising up a type of Antichrist. We've talked about this. It is widely agreed upon among scholars that Nimrod was the first world leader in human history and definitely the first globalist <laughs> to speak, okay? So uh, she goes and does a breakdown of that, which I love. Uh, talks about Satan's grand plan is to establish an antichrist, right? He wants to defile the genome. 
He wants to create a Nephilim phenotype that would establish the foundation of paganism, easy for me to say. And all the things he accomplished through Nimrod, she makes a great list out. The people are lured away from worshiping the one true God and they're led to worship a false perverted trinity, right? Consisting of Nimrod, Semiramis, and Horus. And, you know, we've, we've been into this. So she goes into all the gods that were produced. And she says, uh, which I agree, Derek Gilbert, Gilbert has gone into plenty of this. There's Here's a list of different names for Nimrod. Okay, so I'm going to say these, and you'll hear some names that are familiar throughout different pantheons, but they're all going back to the spirit of Nimrod, okay? Because all nations came from all these people after Babel. Osiris, Tumutz, Moloch, Baal, or Baal, Dagon, Atlas, Marduk, Saturn, Mars, Shamash, Kronos, Ninurta, Zeus, Dionysus, Myathra, and Ra. Okay. She goes on and she talks about the queen of heaven or Semiramis. The, what comes out of this whole Nimrod situation. Here are some of the gods traced back to her. They just come under different names. All the same entity. Isis, Ishtar, the queen of heaven. Ashtoreth, Ashtara, Artemis, Diana, Astarte, Gaia, Columbia, Juno, Hera, Inanna, Jezebel, Lilith and Mary. So I was in a, when I travel, I do like to go to a curiosity shop. And most, most places have them. You'd be surprised. Um, but I like to go and see what occult stuff's happening in that area. Right? And the last one I was in where was I? I don't remember. Hmm. South Carolina somewhere. And much of much of these names were on much of what was happening there. I guess that's my point. So she's going to go into more Nimrod stuff. She really, she really parks there and uses a lot of Adam Clark's commentary. I mean, I like what she's doing. Um, we've just kind of been there, whoop, done that. So we're going to move on from that. She talks about brings it into the Tower of Babel and what happened with all those, you know, post-Diluvian people gathering in that sh- that plain of Shinar, you know, that, we, that we've mentioned. Uh, now she says, uh, the path of the immortals, which is Thomas Horm and Chris Putnam, the Tower of Babel being a stargate close to the, the Great Pyramid. This is what they say. I will read, quote, this was not merely a tower intended to re- reach heaven due to its height. This was a stargate whose design was inspired by forbidden knowledge. Nimrod had deciphered the secret to unlocking a portal, an Einstein-Rosenbridge that would lead to the heights once envied by Satan, the sides of the north, the heavenly throne. The ancient land of Sumer, known as Shinar and later Babylon, produced original accounts by scribes who detailed how certain gods, lowercase, descended from heaven, sometimes in flying machines, we've covered this, and sometimes through magical doorways associated with specific mountains. (laughs) I mean, everything's... Skinwalker Ranch has got all this going on. Uh, these stories were pressed onto Sumerian cuneiform clay tablets that were pictographs and other symbols to produce the first known system of writing and record keeping. The fantastic encounters told of how visits by the gods led to advanced scientific and arcane knowledge, which later was codified in the Babylonian mysteries and worship of Ishtar, Tumutz, Ashtoreth, and various Baals. Okay, fantastic. 
uh, she goes and she dives into some scripture in the Psalms, actually, which is really fascinating. I love. She does some more Michael Heiser stuff that uh, that he put in there on, on the Tower of Babel. Uh, I will leave that for the book. But uh, I did want to talk about some of the, when she mentioned some of the desert creatures that are mentioned in Isaiah chapter 13. Uh, this is This is important. So we're going to, let me see here. So she says, now let me draw our attention to the desert creatures mentioned in Isaiah 13. There are several places in scripture where desert creatures are mentioned, and most often it references desolation and darkness. According to Hebrew terminology, desert creatures were commonly interpreted as demons or gods. Of particular importance is how our investigation is the mention of the owl. (laughs) Man, there are, owls are, geez, I saw one for real the other day. A couple weeks ago, rather, we were out back on a patio at night having some cocktails with my sister was in town and her husband and Rachel and my kids. And I don't know where I look up in the, the moonlit sky to my neighbor's house over across the way and this perfect silhouette of an owl. First time I've ever seen one in the wild in my entire life. Isn't that crazy? He was just sitting there chilling about 50 feet from us and we all just watched him for about 20 minutes and then boom, he vanished. I just don't, I've never seen owls, but they're, could we get into it as demons or gods in the past? Owls are fascinating. She says, of particular importance to our investigation is the mention of the owl. There are a few times in the book of Isaiah where an owl is mentioned. I've talked about this. Similar to Isaiah 13, Isaiah 14 ties the presence of owls in Babylon to the time of its destruction. And I'll read Isaiah 14, 23. I will turn her into a place for owls and into a swampland. I will sweep her with a broom of destruction, declares the Lord. What? I will turn this place into a place for owls. Interesting. She goes on, the demonic entities or pagan deities represented by the owl can be found not only in antiquity, but also in present day secret societies. In ancient Babylon and Mesopotamia, Semiramis Ishtar Lilith was considered the goddess of the underworld, the night monster. This terracotta clay plaque, oh, she talks, she gives a picture here. She shows a Babylonian relief, basically, that is housed in the British Museum of uh, Lilith being that owl thing. Isaiah goes on, 34, 14. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet the wild beasts of the island, and the satyr shall cry to his fellow. The screech owl also shall rest there and find herself a place of rest. Now, I've broken this verse down many times when it comes to Lilith and when it comes to um, succubus or banshees even. There are things going on here. The Hebrew word for screech owl is obviously Lilith. It's the only time this word is used in the Bible, and it means Lilith, the name of a female goddess known as a night demon that haunts the desolate places of Edom. Remember Edom from Esau, red. Jackie Colas Harvey in her book, Red, A History of the Redhead, Huh, I'm going to have to read that. Provides an explanation for the origins of Lilith. Oh, this is interesting. Let's read this. This isn't long. 
The Talmudic alphabet of Ben Sira of the 8th to 10th century conjures into being a first wife for Adam. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Pre-Eve, to explain the fact that the book of Genesis, a wife is mentioned twice. Out of this minor inconsistency, a good deal of padding from earlier Jewish and even Babylonian mythology was created, the legend of Lilith. The woman who, seeing herself as her husband's equal, refuses to lie beneath. She then quarrels with Adam, strikes out into the Babylonian wilderness on her own. All right. Anyway, uh, so, you know, she often has red hair. <laughs> I guess that's my point. <laughs> so, Dr. Sanger says, in Lilith, we not only have the representation of the owl, but also the depiction of red hair. As we progress further along in our investigative journey... We will discover the connection between red hair, and I love how she does this, and the Nephilim phenotype, as well as the link between the owl and the Federal Reserve note. Come on, guys. She hits up Revelation here. Uh, man, does she make some good connections. Holy smokes. Uh, listen, I am going to... She connects the release of the Watchers in Revelation 9 and the destruction of Babylon. I'm going to leave that for the book. But she goes back into more desert creatures, particularly the owl inhabiting Babylon following this destruction. Uh, and I love what she does through the Psalms and the Septuagint and Nimrod uh, of what happened with that great desert thing that's out there, right? Whew. Okay. So she goes into Sodom and Gomorrah, and I agree with her. I've talked about this many times. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, there was homosexuality there. Of course, there was just rampant sin all over the place. But the sin they committed was they were mixing species there. They were, they were, you know, desperately trying to regain those gods by mixing. And when the angels come, they were just want, you know, everything they could possibly do to try to, you know, have either homosexual intercourse with these angels or get them to their women so that they could procreate. Once again, bring back these old gods. So I'm going to put the pieces together here. <laughs> Angels from a divine race, they show up in Sodom. Their presence is stirred up such listlessness among the Sodomites that all the people, which included both men and women of the human race, desired to have sex with them. Their wicked, perverse desires were evidence that they engaged in ongoing practices of abomination before the Lord. They had committed such acts with haughty attitudes. Their practices included disgusting rituals that included the mixing of marriages. She says, I don't believe this is speak of interracial marriages. We think of them today, but rather interspecies, hybrids, marrying humans. She talks about Goliath and gigantism and, you know, all that good stuff, but I'm going to leave that to her. She goes back and talks about King Saul and the Gibberim, which I think was fascinating how Saul's father, Kish, was remarkably taller than everyone else. I love where she was going with that. It's just fascinating. Um, she says, at two critical junctures in history, the post-flood rep repopulation of the earth and the reign of Israel's first king, there were people who had the Nephilim gene, right? Free will provided them the, provided them the choice to follow after God or not. Yeah, so I really like where she's going with this. Throughout Saul's reign, Israel battled the Philistines and the Amalekites. Saul is described as warring against the Philistine all the days of his life. Now, what if he had the Nephilim gene in him? Because she points out, and I never really put this together, that Saul, during his life, guys, he was always had this 
inclination toward disobedience and pride showing favor to these Nephilim nations and leaders. First Samuel talks of that when, you know, he comes and he's supposed to kill everyone from this particular tribe and he doesn't and he leaves people. We see this over and over again. Saul seems to have a, a propensity towards these people. Now, his dad was very tall. So did he have that choice, you think? I think she makes a really good run at that case, but I'm going to leave that for the book. Obviously, he leaves at one point. First um, Samuel, he leaves uh, Agag, who is most likely a giant. His name means I will overtop. <laughs> tall stature. He leaves him alive. And uh, what happens? Samuel has to hack him to pieces. So she says, now, in order to connect some of the dots as to why God commanded Saul to Karim, uh, which destroy everything, we need to understand a bit more about the Amalekites. Amalekites were the grandson of Esau. Esau's son, Eliphaz, had a horrid concubine. Remember, Esau did very bad things, right? He, Jacob had the right choice and went and did what Isaac asked him to do, right? And Esau went and said, screw you, I'm going to go marry some giants. So he bore the Amalekites out of them. The Horites are mentioned in Genesis 14 in a list of giant tribes. While it's not thought that the Horites themselves are a tribe of giants, it is commonly thought that they were a tribe of people that intermingled with giants. So I'm going to leave it at that because when we start up again, we're going to really get into Jacob and Esau and the red thing and what, what seems to have happened after that that led straight to the Federal Reserve. This is a shorter episode, but again, I want to keep it thematic. See you next time.